And when you see these towns, and when you see these thugs being thrown into the back of a paddy wagon, you just see them thrown in, rough. I said, please don't be too nice. Like when you guys put somebody in the car and you're protecting their head, you know, the way you put their hand over. Like, don't hit their head and they've just killed somebody, don't hit their head. I said, you can take the hand away, okay? He's doing the most, doing the most, doing the most Trump. He wants to be hard on crime. Till it's Trump doing time. He's doing the most, doing the most. <laughs> Hello, my name is William. And I'm Rosie Wonder. And this is Good Morning Democracy. If I could go back in time, I would go back and tell <laughs> the DNC to put Bernie on the ticket. Nah, see, I don't blame myself. I tried to warn y'all of two things. One. That white people were mad as hell with their all lives matter bullshit. And two, that Trump had an actual shot at winning. See, that's why I wanted to make this podcast. I do feel you on that. I wanted to make this podcast to arm people with the facts so that they can make better informed decisions. Isn't that why you wanted to make it? Yeah, somewhere along those lines. I mean that. And I want there to be proof in the future that I was right. <laughs> That's just like you. I mean, you're crazy. <laughs> no, this healthcare shit is crazy. Let me break it down for y'all real quick. So we know Trump's been looking for a win by repealing Obamacare. And at this point, he doesn't care how that happens. Even if that means that 20 million people lose healthcare, like the Congressional Budget Office predicts, mm. he doesn't care if that means taking healthcare away from two out of every five kids. Or the fact that nearly half of all the births in the United States is paid for by Medicaid. Or that the majority of elderly care in nursing homes is paid for by the very budget he wants to cut. He doesn't care if he destroys our most vulnerable populations. I mean, Trump would obviously let John Q's son die. <laughs> I mean, obviously. Speaking of John Q, another Denzel classic. So now Trump is on this idea of a skinny repeal. A skinny repeal? Does that mean that this bill has been drinking flat tummy tea all <laughs> winter, trying to get his body right for the summer congressional session? Duh, they ordered it off Instagram. But <laughs> no, it means that the efforts to repeal Obamacare haven't gone so well so far. And the Republicans, like old blubber face Mitch McConnell, <laughs> are quite face. desperate. They are attempting to break this repeal to the bare bones to get it just to pass the Senate. This means they would be cutting things like the individual mandate. That says that everyone must be insured. The employer mandate. That says that anyone with more than 50 employees must provide affordable health care to those employees. And cut the medical device excise. I mean, goddamn. Obamacare wasn't perfect, but these are all major things that the Affordable Care Act depend on How you gonna to pay function. For it? Exactly. But don't worry your pretty little pre-existing type 1 diabetic face. <laughs> the skinny repeal did not pass. Yeah, but just barely. True. With a vote of 51 against and 49 for, three Republicans had to cross the aisle to get this to fail. I mean, good for them. Standing up for what's right instead of blindly following a party. It couldn't have been easy for them to do that. As we all know, Trump is a bully, and there have been reports that he's filtered down threats to one of the Republicans who voted no. 
Her name is Lisa Murkowski, a senator from Alaska who stood up to Trump and told him she isn't here for his fuckery. But instead, she's here to represent her constituents from Alaska. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but what actually happened is they said that they would cut oil rights to Alaska if she didn't vote yes. So in some ways, it's actually helping the environment. Yes, I am here for the environment being safe and for people telling Trump what is what, even if they are Republicans. So what other Republicans voted against this? There was Susan Collins of Maine and John McCain from Arizona. Hold up. Did you just say John McCain? John McCain, Wayne. Yep, I did. Oh my God, I've been on a John <laughs> McCain emotional roller coaster ride lately. Yo, me too. First, we find out he has brain cancer. And I was like, aww. And then he voted to move forward and even talk about the repeal. And I was like, this nigga, he, I felt so <laughs> betrayed. And then he gives the most dramatic thumbs down to single his vote like he's a Roman emperor or something. <laughs> and I was like, well, okay, John McCain. You go, Glen Coco, I you go. I don't like you. That was far too much emotion for me. So let's keep this crazy Trump train moving. Trump decided to tweet how he's banning transgender people from joining the military. He basically said he thinks it's too burdensome to have transgender people serve this country, citing health cost bills as being far too expensive. Expensive? I know. Well, excuse me. Trump requested a $30 billion increase to the military budget, and he received $15 billion. So I'm sorry if that's not enough money to provide transgender services for people who fought Mm, for our country. Tell them. We have the largest military budget in the world, but not enough for people that Trump determines to be burdensome. Mm. The military spends five times more in Viagra than on transgender services. But I don't see him trying to cut that out. Not to mention that Trump has gone to Mar-a-Lago seven times this year. And his golf swing ugly. That cost $3.6 million each trip. Less than a quarter of the military budget goes to transgender services. So Trump can take his tweet and shove it up his... All right. We talked about this. We don't need to let this fool get your blood pressure so high. Mm, get Get your chakras aligned. And I think we all know where this is going, so let's move swiftly along to our next segment, which we are calling... This Week on Survivor. <laughs> As they say on Project Runway, one week you're in, the next you're, you're out. <laughs> so tell me which crony got voted off the island this week. Well, this week we say goodbye to Press Secretary Sean Spicy Spicer. So long, Spicy. I'll never forget my favorite memory of you. That time you hid in the bushes to avoid <laughs> answering questions. <laughs> I'm so sorry. That's just so funny when I thought about it. <laughs> Sarah Huckabee Sanders has been promoted to fill the podium and she's already making a name for herself with pearls of wisdom like this. Did, did the president go too far with this tweet in its deeply personal nature? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, I think that the president has been uh, attacked mercilessly on personal accounts by members on that program. And I think he's been very clear that when he gets attacked, uh, he's going to hit back. I think the American people elected somebody who's tough, who's smart, and who's a fighter. Who's tough, who's smart, and who's a fighter. Who's tough, who's smart, and who's a fighter. And that's Donald Trump, that he fights fire with fire. She might be a greater shit spinner than Sean Spicer. Mm. Chocolate water. Chief of Staff Reince Priebus, Reince Penis, sadly also didn't get a rose this week. Well, with a name like that, I'm surprised he got as far as he (laughs) did in life. That's a low blow, baby. 
I said what I said. And what I'm saying is that white people are nervous when they hear names like Devante and Jaquan, but they aren't the least put off by a name like Reince. You right. So Reince Priebus is being replaced by John F. Kelly. This announcement happened on Twitter, which is normal at this point. But the strange part about this whole thing is when Anthony Scaramucci, the new communications director, came in and A, calls himself the Mooch, <laughs> and B, had an interview with The New Yorker where he said, quote, and I'm not playing. I'm not Steve Bannon. I'm not trying to suck my own well. Where the fuck did that come from? And in this same interview, he had a lot to say about Priebus, too. Things like he's a liar and that he has leaked information. Trump never defended Priebus, instead forced him to resign. Ooh, this thing's more scandalous than Olivia Pope. And you remember that he was also talking about firing Sessions as well. Man, I'm gonna be sad if Sessions has to sashay away. RuPaul's Drag Race. But I thought you hated Sessions. I I wouldn't think that you would care if that racist Keebler elf had to go. Yeah, but who else am I going to be able to use this refined southern accent on, man? I love saying things like, bless your heart. And I do declare, and if a hit dog, don't holler. Okay, well, now you just sound like three gallons of crazy in a two-gallon bucket. (laughs) Now you sound country as hell. You're rubbing off on me. Well, in any case, hopefully Trump will be the next one to go. You're fired. There are rumors circulating around on the official trusted press of the White House, Twitter, that the Attorney General of New York, Eric Schneiderman, may have Donald Trump as a potential subject in an investigation for corruption. Ooh, now we don't know if this is true just yet, but if he does... If he does... Then there would be no immunity for Trump's family because the fact that this is a state crime and not a federal one. Yes, so this has to do with the New York Attorney General looking into Eric Trump's foundation and because of enterprise corruption, which is the state's version of RICO... What's RICO? RICO, or Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act, is a federal law designed to combat organized crime in the United States. It allows prosecution for racketeering activity performed as part of an ongoing criminal enterprise and makes it possible for the leaders of a syndicate to be tried for the crimes which they ordered others to do. Oh, I see. Because if I order you to murder a man, technically I didn't commit the murder, so how could I be tried for the murder? Yeah, RICO and Enterprise Corruption makes sure that everyone involved can go down for these crimes. These laws were made for crime mafias and is often used in New York to bring down gangsters. Well, Trump's the biggest scammer of all time. Bigger than Charles Ponzi? Even bigger than the Nigerian Prince scam. Where's my $16 million? (laughs) Even bigger than Joanne the scammer. Iconic. And if he goes down for this crime, I hope the cops don't take it easy on him. Because that's the way Trump would have wanted it. I said, please don't be too nice. Remember, Donnie, you asked for this. And that's the end of this week's Trump Sense. Next up, we break down this week's main topic. This week, the Brooklyn Museum partnered with the Equal Justice Initiative and Google to debut a new exhibit, The Legacy of Lynching, Confronting Racial Terror in America. We went the night after it opened, and alongside the video interviews of survivors and descendants of racial violence, there are magnificent pieces of artwork detailing the attempted destruction of black people, as well as art detailing the often untold resiliency of black folks. 
So if you're in the New York area, you must see this exhibit. Must. We, as a people, must acknowledge that this mm. dark period is part of America. A part of American history we must face if we ever plan to become united. America has always been a violent place. Facts. That fact is undeniable. But the details of this violence have never been emphasized in schools and is simply glossed over. Upon Plymouth Rock landing on white Protestants 400 years ago, we've managed to destroy and murder the indigenous people of this land, mm. slaughtered and enslaved Native Americans. Upon that land usurped from the original people. Millions of slaves were wrongfully mounted by landowners. Landowners who were backed with full faith and credit by the newly found American government. The destruction and murder of Native Americans and African Americans was government sponsored. More violence ensued shortly after the founding of our country. The bloodiest war ever, the Civil War. And soon thereafter, whites all across this country engaged in murder, violence, and rape against a newly freed black community in every nook and cranny of this country. After the Civil War and following emancipation, angry white people in America took it upon themselves to terrorize black people both physically and economically. Majority white business owners and institutions didn't hire, didn't loan, they did mm. not allow them to unionize alongside them. When mm. black folks fought back against this unfair treatment, they were met with mob violence. The police supported those perpetrating violence. This era called Reconstruction was a massive failure. And would you believe me if I told you that America hasn't changed that much since the Civil War? Reconstruction is simply not taught in detail in American schools. So why? why? One must ask, why? Who writes the history books? The violence perpetrated by white Americans doesn't fit the narrative of a free and beautiful America. Mm. The only thing being reconstructed during the two decades after the Civil War was white supremacy. During this period, white Southern conservatives took control of government. They took control of nearly every seat in the South. And through violence and intimidation, they seized control of black folks through every facet of government. The Ku Klux Klan was founded in 1865, the year the Civil War ended as a response to what they believed was their God-given way of life, agriculture, and racial superiority. KKK members became politicians and police officers. They became lawyers and judges. Law and order became the tagline, and together, public servants became the enforcers of a government complicit in the murder of its own people. But most times, there were no judges and jury, only a tree branch and a rope. Only a tree branch and hate. A noose with thousands of spectators, joy and excitement on their faces, cameras ready. Because to them, to white folks, hanging a black person was an event. An occasion. To many, pure fun. Lynching is American. Part of the bloody history of this country. The parts of that history we have never come to terms with. Purposefully omitted from the national identity. They omit the barbaric details, the disregard for human life, and the desecration of the Constitution. They don't show the pictures of the white Sunday school children smiling, posing on their mutilated body of a black man hanging overhead. They don't teach you about the mind state of white people and mob violence. They don't denounce with their every breath the actions of these people whose descendants wander this country. No, rather, our teachers taught us an alternate history. A history where white terrorism is watered down and where the lynching of black folks can be explained in two paragraphs in a 500-page textbook. 
We aim to correct this revisionist history, a history written by white supremacists, and a history that we can no longer afford to be ignorant to. The term lynching is defined as the extrajudicial execution of a person by a mob. By the 1890s, the majority of those lynched were black, and the mobs were almost exclusively white. Political terrorism ensured that black folks could never fight back. White politicians created poll taxes, literacy tests, and followed that with violence to ensure no black folks voted. Police never took the side of colored people over a white person. Never. Even the Supreme Courts decided separate but equal was constitutional. And with that, Jim Crow became firmly rooted in the South. But what caused this explosion of lynching? What caused white people taken to the streets to form violent mobs? What types of crimes would black people have to commit to be savagely beaten, burned, and tortured before tying a noose around his or her neck and pulling them up on a tree? Journalist Ida B. Wells, a black woman who defied social norms to investigate lynching, an American hero, found that oftentimes there was no crime committed. Mm. Or if there were, they were wholly exaggerated. To understand lynching and the motivation to convince a mob to murder a person, you have to understand Southern white culture, deeply rooted in religion and racism. Politicians and community leaders liken black people to beasts, to animals, over-sexualized and dehumanized them in papers, in speeches, in advertisements, in political cartoons and in schools and in churches. By the turn of the century, politicians started to make public statements defending lynching as a right whites have to protect themselves from these so-called beasts. In 1907, Mississippi Governor James J. Vardaman said, quote, If it is necessary, every Negro in the state will be lynched. It will be done to maintain white supremacy. He later became a U.S. senator. White supremacy is fluid within the white culture and encompasses many different aspects of white society. At the forefront of this KKK ideology is the notion of white women purity. The idea that white women and her southern flower, a play on words of geography, botany, and human anatomy, that her southern flower must be protected and could be desecrated by blacks, animals looking to rape a white woman. It is often argued that the KKK was founded primarily to combat threats of white women being raped by black men, or more realistically, to prevent white women and black men from intermingling. Soon, white women claiming rape almost always ended in a lynching. One single accusation drove thousands of people to travel hundreds of miles to witness and partake in brutal murder. The first woman senator ever was from Georgia. Her name... Rebecca Latimer Felton, often called a suffragist and reformer, was also a racist. In 1897, she said this. Oh, man. If it takes lynching to protect women's dearest possessions from drunken, ravening human beasts, then I say lynch a thousand a week if it becomes necessary. The truly sad thing about this woman is that she was a suffragist, someone who dedicated herself to the fight for women's rights while at the same time denying that same human right to people of color. At the Women's March earlier this year, communities of color chastised those very same white women for showing up to women's marches, but never showing up to a Black Lives Matter event. Historically, the support of the white community has never been there. Nothing and no one stopped the raiding of jails and the hanging of black people. Black folks had no protectors. They couldn't even defend themselves because doing so meant losing your life. 
This unfounded fear of black people was so deeply entrenched in white society. White churches preached this to their congregation. The white government and the white business and the white society furthered and deepened this fear by reinforcing it. Lynching became a ritual. And white folks reveled in it. They loved it. Saw it as sport. That's sick. Often saying things like it was God's will. This week, we speak in detail about one lynching in particular. The August 1930 lynching of Thomas Shipp and Abram Smith in Marion, Indiana. That night, they also attempted to lynch a boy named James Cameron, who was arrested along with Thomas and Abram, but was spared at the last minute. What makes it okay for mobs of people to act as judge and jury? Why were these kids not afforded their constitutional rights? The simple answer is because they were black. So here's what happened. It was night of August the 7th, 1930, and it was after dark. I know something's going to happen. It was a smothery day in summer when you just couldn't get your breath hardly. And all over town, you felt uh, like something was wrong. Three boys were arrested and accused of the murder of a white man and the rape of his girlfriend. His name was Claudeter. He took a girl, Mary Ball, to Lover's Lane, a clearing near a river where kids went to fool around. While Claude and Mary went inside the car, the boys snuck up and held them at gunpoint. What happens next is unclear, but the only definitive detail is that Claude Dieter was shot and mortally wounded. A farmer heard the cries and took Mary and Claude to the hospital. When police arrived at the hospital, Mary Ball claimed she was raped by three black boys. Police later arrested them and tortured them in police custody. While Claude was in the hospital, the county sheriff hung his white blood-soaked shirt in the window of the county police station to wave like a flag. Word of the rape spread like wildfire as white folks called family all over the state to spread the news. Uh, I can never forget that night. When they put me in this jail, I was in there about three hours when daylight approached. And they were gathering in small knots of people, eight to ten people at a time, and shaking fists up at the jail, and, and, and the crowds kept getting bigger and bigger all during the day. Soon, Claude Dieter died from his gunshot wounds, and thousands of white folks poured into Marion because a lynching was planned. I came down from the office, and Grendel said, where are you going, kiddo? And I said, well, I'm going home. I said, I've finished my day's work. And he said, well, you better stick around. And I said, well, what's going on? I said, I haven't heard anything. And he said, well, they're going to lynch the niggers. And I said, oh, Grendel, you're kidding. And he said, no, I'm not. He said, you better stick around so there's going to be some excitement. It was something like 7 or 7.30. And it just seemed like things were just normal. And then all at once, why, things just broke loose and started to happen. Black folks knew what was about to occur. They knew they were not safe. That whites would soon ride into town to murder any black person they saw. So they evacuated the whole city. Take a listen to James Cameron describe the moment they raided the jail. The sheriff had plenty of police officers there to stop the action of the mob. But the sheriff gave orders not to shoot out into the crowd because there were women and children out there. So when the uh, mob heard that, some big men, four or five of them, asked for a sledgehammer. And they began to pound around the front door of the jail, which was ironclad. And finally... They busted a hole in this iron door, and then the jail was theirs. They took Tommy out of his jail cell block, 
They beat Tommy first. So white folks with massive sledgehammers raided the prison and swung these sledgehammers to destroy the brick around the iron gates of the prison cell. After they smashed through that, they pulled out Thomas. And almost immediately after being dragged out, Tommy, as he was affectionately called, was struck with a crowbar multiple times, bashing in the back of his head. He was dead almost immediately. We, we knew that Tommy was dead when they drug him out of sight because someone had ran a crowbar through him several times. And then they drug him through the streets like a dead horse. And they come dragging one of the boys out of the jail. They took him right down the sidewalk. Everybody was kicking, hitting him and everything else. People were beating on him with anything they had in their hand and screaming and carrying. It was just out of this world. It was terrible. The white mob dragged his lifeless body along the cobblestone street, allowing the crowd to beat him with bricks, to smash his teeth out with bats and hammers, and to swing nailed boards at his body. They paraded him around for 10 minutes before tying a rope around his neck, his already dead body. With this rope, they dragged him along the cobblestone back to the jail, where they tied it around a second-story window and pulled until his body hung lifelessly. The mob was excited and cheered for the next one. Amid cheers and celebrations, the mob pulled out Abe and dragged him along the street for two blocks where ongoers beat on his body with bricks and crowbars. Take a listen to a white onlooker describe the event. And there was a Model T Ford Coupe that a woman was standing up there and just they was all going crazy. She jumped down. She had high heels. I seen this happen. Her high heels just scraped a hole just like cut with a knife down his back. Called him out and they drug him up there by a car. And they took him off of there and put him on, hung him up on the maple tree. The maple tree was located two blocks from the jail in the county courthouse grounds. And there, they tied the noose around Abe's neck, threw the rope over the limb, and countless hands grabbed the rope and together, the white mob pulled him up. Dangling there, Abe's bloody, beaten body fought to reach up and grab the rope. Drowning out the noise of the mob, he struggled to grasp the noose and hold himself up. And he reached up to get hold of the rope to keep from choking him. So they let him down and broke his arms so he couldn't hang on to the rope. And they pulled him up again. They held him down and broke his arms so he could only flail while the rope tightened around his neck. The mob took down Tommy, the first teen they hanged, from the jail and dragged his dead body to a tree and pulled him up next to Abe. It was at this point that the town's photographer completed the ritual of lynching by taking a photo of it, of the bodies, the tree, and the crowd. It's arguably one of the most iconic photos of white terrorism. Two bloody black bodies, clothes shredded and barely hanging on, hanging above smiling white people of all ages. Rushing home that night to create copies, that photographer would go on to sell thousands of copies of that photo within days. The photos of lynching were oftentimes made into postcards that white folks sent to each other celebrating the often smiling crowds. One researcher found photo albums from dozens of prominent Southern families with photos of mutilated black bodies, dozens of postcards with captions like, what a wonderful birthday, 
written underneath. After the town's photographer snapped the photo and the massive powder light bulb flashed, the crowd called for the last inmate to be hung. So after 15 or 20 minutes of having their pictures taken and everything, they came back to get me. And uh, just then the sheriff came in, and he was sweating like somebody had thrown a bucket of water in his face. He told the mob leader, said, get the hell out of here. Say, you've already hung two of them, so that ought to satisfy you. And then they began to yell for me like a favorite basketball or football player. They said, we want Cameron, we want Cameron, we want Cameron. And uh, I looked over into the faces of people as they were beating me along the way up to the tree. I was pleading for some kind of mercy, looking for a kind face. But I could find none. They got me up to the tree, and they got a rope, and they put it around my neck. And they began to push me under the tree. And that's when I prayed to God. I said, Lord, have mercy and forgive me my sins. It was at this moment that someone got on the hood of a car and yelled out that Cameron had nothing to do with the rape or murder. So the mob decided not to hang him. Cameron had the good luck of being last. Instead, the mob turned their attention to gathering anything they could find to throw in a pile underneath the dead bodies of Abe and Tommy. And they lit this pile of debris on fire so that it could slowly burn and char the flesh as onlookers cheered on. Soon after, they cut the bodies down and pieces of clothing were taken by the spectators as souvenirs. The rope was cut to bits that could be handed out to be saved for future generations to see. And they got that rope on one of the hardware stores here. The rope that they used was new rope, about three-eighths inch. I used to have a piece of it. I used to have a piece of it. I used to have a piece of it. Pieces of the charred bodies of Abe and Tommy were chopped up and taken home by the mob to be handed down and cherished as family heirlooms. Ears, fingers, bones, all taken as trophies, souvenirs, and postcards. It was later found that Mary Ball fabricated the story of rape, that she in fact was not raped, but rather fabricated it to incite violence. Cameron was later found guilty, but was later exonerated by the state of Indiana. After his release, James Cameron dedicated his life to civil rights advocacy and later opened the first black Holocaust museum in America in Wisconsin. Uh, then she is the photo of this lynching that inspired the Jewish school teacher and poet Abel Mirapol to write the poem Strange Fruit. Abel said the photo moved him to poetry to protest the violence of white Americans against blacks. The poem was then introduced to Billie Holiday by an owner of the first integrated club in America located in Greenwich Village, New York. Despite fear of retaliation by whites, Billie Holiday set out to record it to music, but many record labels refused to record it for the fear of Southern music retailers' reactions. However, her 1946 rendition of the song is considered one of the greatest songs ever recorded, 
and has been entered into the Grammy Hall of Fame and became one of Billie Holiday's best-selling records. Nina Simone's rendition of Strange Fruit is also iconic, most recently sampled by Kanye West for his song Blood on the Leaves. By the 1940s, however, lynching numbers decreased as the violence towards black transformed into other sinister means. But the legacy of this violence is still felt by the descendants of those lynched. The barbaric nature of these lynchings are just not told. The stories of innocent American citizens being terrorized are not told. The culture of white supremacy is glossed over and diluted among triumphant stories of white patriotism. And the only way to reconcile our past is to tell these stories and never forget them. To reconcile, we must hold white society responsible for their acts of terrorism and to confront the institutional racism inside every facet of society that is simply an evolution of slavery. You know... I really don't know what to think of white America when I hear these stories. And then, with my own two eyes, see the cover-up. When you see pictures of dead bodies with smiling whites underneath them, when you think about the shifting politics of racism, although lynching doesn't happen anymore with ropes and trees, lynchings occur now through the courts, through stand your ground, Mm. through drug laws targeting communities Mm. of color. Over the next few weeks, we will embark on another story of white supremacy. This time, telling the story of four Groveland, Florida teenagers falsely accused of raping a white woman and tried through faulty courts and judged by biased judges. Groveland is located about 30 miles west of Disney World and about a 15-minute drive from where I grew up in Claremont, Florida. Yet, I've never heard of this story until a few years ago. Mm. No school taught it. The community doesn't even speak on it. It's just a blot on the history of an entire area tucked away. This story weaves the blurred lines of white supremacy and police firmly together. This story features Thurgood Marshall and the NAACP's fight for the legal defense of wrongfully accused blacks in the South. This story will tell you how this violence spans decades and affects generations today. What Thurgood Marshall saw in the Jim Crow South and particularly in Lake County, Florida disturbed him. And when you hear it, it will disturb you as well. But these stories must be told, and we want to tell them. That's all for this episode. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram to stay posted with other little tidbits we have planned for our upcoming projects. And as always, thanks thanks again again for for listening. Magnolia, sweet and fresh. Then the sudden smell. Of burning flesh Here is a fruit For the crows to pluck For the rain to gather For the wind to suck Thank you.